podcast with me Danny Champion. This week's episode is with Neil Gaffney of Universal Records. I worked with Neil for a few years during my time at Peer Music. Um, He is a fountain of knowledge when it comes to collection societies, rights management uh, and metadata and those are the things that we talked about in this in this conversation. Another conversation done via via the internet, um, and yeah, it was a really really interesting chat about metadata, about all things data, about things that a lot of people feel might be a little bit on the dull side, but are becoming increasingly important in the modern music industry, as he points out. So, here is my conversation with Neil Gaffney. <laughs> back in back in the 80s oh my word um i met a couple of guys this is probably one of those stories you hear all the time I met a couple of guys at sixth form college we decided we were going to travel down to that well london <clears throat> um so at the age of 18 um i hitchhiked down because we were going to become famous in music we were right. be internationally renowned singer songwriters um and I saw an advert in the Evening Standard for the most exciting role ever as a royalty auditor. <laughs> but it said EMI. Right. And we all know who EMI was. Mm-hmm. Um, I applied, got the job. And 30 years later, I'm still going, why music? Um, so, I, well, it's, why music is because you were, are, a musician of sorts. You played, play, an instrument. So I, so I, I um, <clears throat> I'm a really bad keyboard player. So I play keyboards like this nice. in the 1980s. Beep bop, beep bop, beep bop. Um, <laughs> and okay, I was incredibly lucky this. I fell into this great job at EMI. And if you're going to count beans, mm-hmm. it's better to count really interesting beans. So you know, I used to look after. A lot of the royalty accounting for you know some of the biggest artists in yeah. the 1940s and you see the numbers come through and you think wow that's that's incredible and my interest has really been built on um how does it work right so i've never been at the the sexy end of the the industry mine has always been <clears throat> you know um <clears throat> uh, mick hucknall has written a new song so what do we have to do to make sure Mick Hucknall's song is registered with all the collection societies worldwide and that um, radio stations know who to pay. If it's on TV, they know who to pay. Mm-hmm. But if anybody wants to license it, whether it be a sync that they have, the people who do that have all the right underlying metadata around that musical creation mm-hmm. to make sure that the creator gets paid. So and I've, I've, I think I've survived the course because as we've become much more data focused, a lot yeah. of the skills and knowledge I gained earlier on by doing lots of research is actually become much more helpful. Mm-hmm. 
and it it, it it really does represent one of our biggest challenges is how do you get the right data into the network of users so that yeah well that's, that's kind, kind of where i wanted to go with this you've you've um it's something that comes up a lot in discussions we're very data driven now uh we've got you know the, the majority of income comes in in micro payments and there are more songwriter shares and different bits of different bits of tiny bits all over the place um you've kind of seen the evolution of that from something that's much more physical tangible to something that's much more granular but i from looking at it from the outside it's still something that we're kind of fighting a little bit against because you know if because of the nature of owning the data i guess um so so from someone in in that can you kind of talk me through a little bit about the, the positive side that you've seen but also some of the negatives that we're still fighting against i think you you hit um the problem right on the head with ownership of data so you know, we, we, we call it fractional rights. So as you say, you can have a song and there might be five songwriters. They might have 10 different publishers and everybody wants to um, make a claim against the, the, the piece that they own. And then you've got 140 collection societies around the world and yeah. then 80 neighboring rights societies and everybody's doing their own little bit. So one of the big things as an industry we've been trying to do over the years is to standardize the um, the delivery chain of the data. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you've heard of an organization called DDEX, which is the um, Digital Data Exchange. Right. DDEX is a <clears throat> not-for-profit standards organization that um, is supported by <clears throat> major record labels, major user publishers, collection societies like PRS, mm -hmm. NASCAP, and then all the end um, stream users, so Apple, Amazon, and right. DDEX has a set of uh, what we call messaging suites. And all the parties involved in that supply chain agree, we need this data and we'll supply it to you in this format. So DDEX has grown over the last 10 years that every single um, music creator, every single rights owner and every single user now deploys all the DDEX messaging suites to make sure that the right metadata goes from the creator straight through to the end user. Okay. So, so um, that what that's standardizing everything? Yeah. On a it's, simple it, level? It, on a very simple level, it's, um, and forgive my terminology, it's a bunch of really, really smart people with propellers on their heads who put whole towels around that just think through complex data problems right. and in a very collegiate way come up with a solution that everybody can buy into. So DDEX sets the standard. Um, I, I, probably the best example is um, with all of the digital service providers of the likes of Apple, mm -hmm. Amazon, Spotify. They use a standard called ERN, which is an electronic release notification. And that means that from a label perspective, um, the label says, this is the album, these are the tracks, these are the artists, these are the songwriters. Mm -hmm. And all of that data goes all the way through to um, each of those platforms. And 
with the advent of voice recognition technology, yes, um, it becomes even more important that if it's John Lennon playing guitar as opposed to John Lennon singing, because people want to find that out. People want to be able yeah. to do their deep dive and go, can you play me a Bootsy Collins track with him as a producer? Okay, so actually yeah, we're really, really getting into the nitty gritty of it. We've, um, we've both had a, a bit of a kind of, we've both steered more towards the publishing side yeah. of things. Uh, and something that I've noticed is that it's in, on the increase somewhat but there has been a little bit of a a lack of songwriter focus and emphasis in the data side over who the shiny face of all of this stuff is is there is there big sea changes happening there where you know we're obviously seeing more uh credits but also we're seeing a little bit more pushback on the publishing side of things especially from some of these um you know, companies like Spotify and stuff like that? I think I'd like to think that we are starting to move in the right direction. Um, I, I don't know whether you remember, there was a, an, an initiative led by the European <coughs> Union um, back in 2008 to create a global repertoire database. Yes, that worked really, that, worked really well. And that, that would have meant for the first time any music user would have been able to say, show me, I can't get you out of my head, I can't even know, oh, these people wrote it. That's fascinating. And for lots of reasons, and it's probably 15 podcasts worth of political um, intrigue <laughs> in there, and it, it didn't work out. But what it did is it sowed the seed right across the industry that there is real value in creative credits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd have seen in the US with the um, the new mechanical licensing collective, it's very very much designed to be a one-stop shop for all of the digital service providers. So they can say, this is all of the stuff I've played. Now, can you make sure the right people get paid? And the better we make that core songwriter composer data, again, it's the sort of thing that will help influence the end user. So when I want to listen to Hans Zimmer play guitar, then it would allow me to do it because we've been able to say right at the start of the chain, Hans Zimmer is a composer, Hans Zimmer also is the guitarist and he's the producer mm-hmm. and pass that information through. So on the publishing side, because of the complexity and because it's fragmented, because it's bound by lots of national music rights societies. Yeah. yeah. Trying to get everybody to understand that standardised metadata is an, an enabler. It is not a threat. It doesn't give anybody more right to do something individually. It just means when somebody licenses a piece of music, the creators get the right credits and hopefully get paid for it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's coming along slowly, but we are definitely... Um, when the GRD failed in 2014, it felt like we would never have that conversation again. We're now having that conversation on a daily basis. Are you quite 
quite involved in conversations between rights owners and companies like Spotify, people like that, when it comes to the financial side of it? You know, are you are you part of that conversation that EMI were having, that Universal are now having in order to get payments flowing in the right way and the, the right amounts? Or is that a completely separate department that you're liaising with can you kind of give us a bit of an insight into what it looks like from a major's perspective so um so, so it, the the deal making is done very separately um, from the day-to-day -day administration from the operations mm -hmm. two sides are always in a constant conversation so you know whenever an organization like universal or whether it be sony goes to make a new deal with um, a spotify or an amazon they will make sure that the guys and girls that look after the operations, all of the requirements are met. So within my role at Universal Music, I'm uh, looking after an initiative called Creator Credits. Mm -hmm. So this is what we've been working with, um, some companies that capture studio data and to deploy DDEX standards. So when at the studio, the producer says, um, you know, this is the singer, this is the venue, this is the data recording, that all of that data goes through untouched in its purest form, all the way through to the end user. And if that data is also the same data that will allow people to get paid, so they get recognized for their creation and they get paid, then that, that's where our touch point is with the deal makers, because we want to make sure that all of that underlying metadata is absolutely bang on 100% correct. You know, a, a label carries a lot of responsibility in making sure it gets the right data capture. Um, and that's a big part of my work is from a global rights perspective, here's a release, here's all the tracks, here's all of the creative involvement and pass that down the pipeline, again, through DDEX, mm -hmm. to ensure that nobody is ever not credited. Now, whether that affects how they get paid, that's a very different issue because that's when we get into the whole contractual obligations and stuff. But the starting point has to be, if I play tambourine on this track, I want to be recognized that I contributed in that way. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that's been, a huge push in the industry. Um, uh, th there's an initiative called Mead, which is um, how we can deliver enhanced metadata around the music creation via DDEX. So artwork, liner notes um, in, in a standardized way so that the platforms can actually just present it there and therefore the creator has an awful lot more control over how they are presented within a, a YouTube or an Apple. What remind me again, DDEX is coming up a lot, and that to me says that you know one business has got a fairly significant uh, influence over an entire industry. Is that not? Is that kind of one of the issues surrounding this? You know, what happens if that business, that system fails or gets bought or? So, so DDEX is a <clears throat> not-for-profit organization right. which is set up solely 
to benefit all of its members. Okay. So it's a membership organisation. Right. So the Universal Music, Sony Music, Warners, <clears throat> um, Sony ATV, ASCAP, BMI. All of the big players from around the industry have representation. Okay. So it's, it's in our shared interest to make sure that DDEX is <clears throat> services every party. So okay. there, there is nobody there driving this one. So it, it's, it's, it's that kind of that idea of we all need to band together and this is kind of how we're going to do it by yeah. keeping a sliver of, of control over it individually. Is that something that someone like a business like a Merlin is involved with in order to represent the, the much smaller companies or as far as so as far as i know that i don't think they have um, a full membership right. but it's certainly part of the ddex secretariat um, so the lovely mark issue word this has been its mission for the last 12 14 years um, is to um, educate and inform so before we you know we weren't able to all get together all the time um, the DDEC secretary would go around to all of the major music festivals, all of the tech festivals, all of the big gatherings of the industry and say, hi, this is what we do. Would you like to join? These are the benefits. So it's, mm -hmm. it's very much driven to get mass participation because standards only work if everybody applies yeah. to standards. And there's an awful lot of businesses that are teeny tiny. You know, they are not the big galumphing universal or sony records they might need to come in via more of a collective or at least have the opportunity to come in on their own terms because i'm still i'm still seeing a lot of discrepancies when it comes to credits and things like that on these platforms uh, yeah i, I think um, <laughs> look what, what are the challenges when you surface a set of information that's never been really publicly available is that you run the risk that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and that for many years, and it was certainly one of the key factors why the GRD didn't succeed, is because there were lots of people in the industry who were terrified that they would surface bad data and then right. they would be held responsible. Okay. Whereas I tend to come a very different view, which is you have to surface the data in order to help fix the data. So Hence why we, you know, we, it, as an industry, we're very keen to promote this creator credits initiative because it's essentially going, you the songwriter, you the artist, you're in the studio together. So we're going to help you with some tools that will plug into your door. So mm -hmm. that will plug into the logic um, that will say, do you want to put this detail in? So you put songwriter credits, you can put recording details, who played what. And then that data is stored and then it's passed down the supply chain. So we're trying to find mechanisms where we can help. It used to be called the bedroom producer, but actually the vast majority of stuff we listen to starts in somebody's home or in yeah, somebody's yeah, yeah. garage. So we're trying to create some initiatives that we can go, guys, this is really, really important so that they take responsibility themselves. So what would you say? I mean, I, I, I work with a lot of up and I hate the phrase up and coming bedroom producers, DIY artists, young bands, young uh, producers, etc, etc. What should they be paying attention to? And, you know, if they're using these uh, 
label service companies out there? What should they be really holding them to task on? And, and who should they be working with in your, in your professional opinion? Um, so look, all the DIY distribution platforms are great. They all have very different quality control criteria for how a, a user will submit data. Uh-huh. So what I would say to any young band, any young artist or any old, doesn't really matter, is if you want to make sure that you're going to be recognized if you know, even if it, nobody ever listens, but when people do and they want to go, oh, it's him or it's her, um, you have to insist with these DIY platforms that they are DDEX compliant um, and they have the capability to hold um, industry standard identifiers. So, um, you know, as a songwriter, you get an IPI number, which is um, controlled by the um, the Author Society's mm-hmm. umbrella body, CSAC. When you get an IPI, it means that whenever your song travels around the world, anywhere, you get recognised as being the songwriter or one of the songwriters. Um, if you're also a performer, an artist, you want to make sure that they can carry an IPN, which is the um, international performer number. So that means you know I can identify this John Lennon from Jonathan Lennon without ever getting mixed up on the names. Yeah, yeah. So insisting that those platforms are able to carry that data means that as your release goes out on the platform and it goes into all of the major uh, DSPs, they will have that quality data around it. So it's one of those tiny little things that people go, really? But in today's transactional world, mm-hmm. okay, you know, if you know my telephone number, Dan, you can call me anytime, any place in the world. I don't know how it works. But the only way you can guarantee if you've got the right telephone number is if I give it to you. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd say Same to principle. anybody else is it's in your control. And once you've given it, um, put it in the public domain, it becomes part of you. It becomes um, Imogen Heap has this great uh, initiative going on called uh, the Creative Passport. Okay. And the idea is that you can put all of your information, your identifiers, your releases, your songwriting credits, your film credits, what syncs you've done, your manager's name, telephone number, into a digital passport that you can then pass around with your work. So it's another one of those really, sounds like a crazy idea, but the more we get young, our our future stars, the future of our... The, the more the more things become intangible, we need to make sure that all that tangible information that was that was available in in well, on the CDs or in the contracts or anything like that is passed around in a, in a, as as be, as good if not better way. It, it's absolutely key, I, and I've, I've done a couple of talks over the last couple of years. You know, with lots of young musicians just to try and get the streets to go, I know it's really boring, <laughs> but you only have to do it once. And a lot of these new um, studio um, creator credit services that are popping up. So you've got Session, you've got Sound Credit, you have you've got Jackster, you've got Viva Sound. So a bunch of organizations that we work very closely with. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make it easy. Like, and go, you're cool, you're young, you've got a guitar, now just spend 30 seconds and type in your name and we'll give you a number and we're done. Yeah. So once you have it, 
that's yours forever. Yeah. And once you have it, as long as it gets applied to your creative work, you'll be recognised what you've done. And again, the, the holy grail for I think for all of us is is music curation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the, I use an Alexa at home. I know there are other services available. And the frustration is, you can say, Alexa, play me, and Alexa will go, I can't find that. You know, well, p- play me. I can't find that. And it's because all of the data that's available is completely unstructured. Mm-hmm. So there's a massive piece of work going on, again, through the DDX community to codify everything. So that when you say, play me Bootsy Collins on drums, it can instantly go, I can identify that. Right. Here's Bootsy yeah, Collins, yeah. here's his role, and here's a track. Mm-hmm. That, for anybody, has to be the holy grail, and especially for more niche music, because it's difficult to find sometimes. I don't know how you think, but I tend to, when I'm listening to music, I think, oh, I haven't heard that for a long time. Oh, didn't somebody do something with this producer? So it's that innovative way, and that really is about how we codify and standardise the data. Yeah. has to start with those smart people who create music. You were at EMI for 24 years, give or take, yes? I was. Boy and man. How, how was EMI as a business to be in from kind of its absolute highest peak through to its lowest? Um, I'd say... Oh, good look. I, I had a blast I had for 24 years I was given you know personally lots of brilliant opportunities to flex my knowledge learn new things challenge how I thought about things um, and you're definitely right it went through some real peaks you know you, you look at um, the late 90s early noughties and the whole music industry was buoyant because of CDs yeah. and then um, we, I used to do a lot of, um, you know, PowerPoint presentations for, in, you know, internal meetings and stuff. And we just had one slide that just went 2002, 2004. And it was the death of the CD. Uh-huh. So it was a really challenging time. And I, I think the purchase by <clears throat> Mr. Guy Hands was a, you know, a challenge for everybody who'd been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, my old boss, Roger Vaxon, did a great job in saving the company and the fact that it was sold to Universal on the record side and to Sony ATV Consortium on the publishing side, I think speaks volumes when the two biggest players on either side of the market valued the company and its music as something that they really wanted to have. So it was... It was a, a challenge for me at the end because after 24 years I left mm-hmm. uh, and I look back on a, an interesting ride, lots of highs, lots of lows and I don't think I'd change anything about it. Do you think major companies, major record labels especially, 
obviously all companies change over time they evolve with as culture evolves but what's the what's the difference between a, a major label in 2020 ignoring the fact that we're all working from home uh and you know the majors when there was four or five of them still do you think that there, there's a, a significant difference i think the i think the biggest change is um everybody has to be smarter about the business that they run in order to be successful mm -hmm. um you know, the growth of the DIY distribution platforms, the growth of some of the <clears throat> the new investment funds that are buying up music copyrights and, you know, legacy recordings, the, the, the growth of the influence of social media has meant that, you know, big companies can't just go, and here we have a release this week of a new album by XYZ. And everybody listens to on radio and they get played on TV because you can't do that anymore. So I, I certainly see at Universal Music that we are incredibly data-driven. So I, I think the biggest change, and I think this reflected across all of the majors, is um, that the hunt for talent has completely changed. Okay. Um, and so I, I want to say data-driven. I don't mean driven by data, but we use data to drive the business. So. Right. It, it, we've had to, I think, reinvent ourselves in some respects to have feelers in many more places than we ever thought possible in order to spot the next big talent. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and you know, there's so much talent out there. And uh, the challenge sometimes is how do you edit down the white noise? Because, you know, even musicians like me who haven't put a record out for 30 years can now put a record out. Yeah. And that's a lot of noise to listen mm -hmm. to. So there's a huge amount of work that goes on. And I, and I think that the, the, the challenge is, you know, there's three majors, but the biggest sector is actually the indie sector. And that's really good. Mm -hmm. So it's how do we complement each other for what we can do? You know, there's been so many major artists come out in the last few years that have nothing to do with any major. Um, I think that was always the same. It's just a, it's it's a lot more noticeable now again because of social media. So mm -hmm. I think it's um, it's certainly very different. It's definitely not the if one sticks out of every ten, we'll make our money. Yeah. Um, I think there's an awful lot more commitment that goes on with the major labels to make that artist career stick. So. It's, it's more difficult, but there's a definite commitment that we want to have Sam Smith have 30 years of brilliant hits. You know, Sony want Adele to have 30 years of brilliant hits. Mm -hmm. That's a challenge because everything changes so quickly. Yeah, but yeah. The definite, the, I think that's the biggest shift is understanding about data. And I think there's definitely the creators have a bigger voice now. Mm -hmm. And the majors actually are hearing it rather okay. than just. So it's something that I hear a lot from from young uh, creators and artists, uh, and again, I'm not speaking to all of them, uh, but a big voice is kind of it's still very much indie's good, major's bad, but it's not. 
that it's never been that is there kind of is there a, from someone who has seen the inside of majors and indies is there is are there kind of things that artists who are not on anyone's radar at the moment should be looking out for when it looks when when they look for these sorts of companies is it is there things that they should be fearful of and are there things that they should be uh, kind of really searching for go back to what i just said i think it's knowing that your voice is being heard i think it, a challenge with any major just because of its sheer size is um, sometimes newer voices get lost mm-hmm. um, and you know, certainly for universal music we've been doing an awful lot of work in the past couple of years um, you know about diversity and about making sure that everybody has a voice everybody has a voice in how the companies run everybody has a voice um, is listened to about what what music we're interested in um but i th- i think if 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 i would you know if a young band came to me and said listen to this and i went oh my god that's amazing um i would definitely advise them choose the people that are going to give you good advice mm-hmm. choose the people that are prepared to say we can do this for you um i it's a story from, from some time ago, but when um, EMI Music Publishing signed the Arctic Monkeys, um, the advice was don't go to a major record label, go to a smaller niche label. So they went to Domino and the rest is history because they were looked after and allowed to be the Arctic Monkeys and Alex Turner was allowed to be a songwriter extraordinaire of you know, Northern Tales, which mm-hmm. you can then turn into any form of music. And I'm not saying that wouldn't have happened to a major, but then we just given so much, we've got you here. So I, I like you, I've, I've known lots of A&R people over the years. Some of them are utterly stunningly brilliant with how they nurture talent. And I think when you meet that person, you'll know. Um, it's I, the person, I, it's not the business. It's, it's, do I think you're going to help my career? Yeah. Do I think you're going to listen to what I want to do or am I just another cost on the balance sheet or an item on the profit and loss account? Um, you, you want to be that person that somebody says, this is a brilliant album and you need a single who will be honest, who will yeah. be effective and then promote you all the way through the organisation. So that, again, challenge with big companies is the big organization so you you have to have there's more people to shout at unique advocacy you need somebody who's going to be able to say i want this to happen and here are the reasons why and so the majors are big because they're successful that's just they are good at what they do and some of the bigger indies are brilliant and there's also a lot of indies out there that are probably just as incompetent as others might be (laughs) yes something i try i try and instill that is kind of saying that it's not this whole sector is better for your for your career and this isn't it's 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 much more smaller margins and 
and smaller things that you need to be looking out for. And it's, it's the people at the end of the day and it's someone who wants to work with you. And if, you're, if someone's trying to change you, because that's what a lot of songwriters are terrified of. Yeah. You go, I, I, don't, I don't want to sign to a publishing company because they're going to tell me how to write a song then that's the wrong publishing company that you've gone to. If you've yeah. signed away your, your, your songs to someone who's then changing them, they didn't want you, they didn't want your songs. Yeah. But do you, you remember your days in sync. Um, there are loads of brilliant sync agents out there. And, the, and you know, what tends to happen is, as a songwriter or an artist, you're offered a deal that goes giving you everything. And I use this phrase, over the last few years, which is about the portability of your rights. You want your portfolio to be able to say, do you know what, you're going to be brilliant for me as a music publisher, but I think this sync agent is going to get me more syncs because they understand mm -hmm. what I'm writing. And I think, you know, people who's the industry need to understand that that's their choice. You don't have to sign everything to one organisation. You can sign this to this, this to this as long as you have the time and the invention to be on top of it. Do you think that that's something that's gonna, that's gonna take on, that's, or that's gonna be uh, more interesting to more artists more and more? You're gonna kind of go, right, I'm gonna go to this publisher because I think they can collect my money in the best way. I'm gonna go to this creative agent because I think they can hook me up with the right songwriters and the right artists in the right way. I'm, and it's actually, it's more about individuals from all over the place rather than going, right, universal, have everything that I've got. Is that something that that's got to be something that, that especially the majors don't want, surely? Or are they kind of, are they, they understand that, which means that they want to be able to offer bits and pieces to more people? One of the, one of the major initiatives we ran before EMI Records was uh, was sold. Is we developed um, a, a three sixty management plan, and the idea is always um, the, the the mantra is it's our job to make you a successful career. It's our job to help you make the best of your career, wherever in your career that is. Right. And so, we, and so we, you know, in effect, we, we had a dashboard and you could come in and say, I want music publishing 101. Uh, I, I don't want anybody using sync, so I'm not going to do the syncs. And I want you to do digital distribution for me. So all of those key elements, we wanted to offer a 360 service right. where we felt we could add value to the creator. It was never about, let's just take everything in because, you know, you, you've been around as long as me. When it goes badly wrong, it goes badly wrong. Yeah. And it might just be on a teeny, really tiny thing, but you destroy the trust on your inability to get me any creative things. And that means they ignore that you've been brilliant and get you um, kind of sessions with different songwriters and they've got you some tracks on a leading artist's album. It just takes one little thing. So I, I think there is a recognition that all the majors that play to our strengths, be good at everything, but the idea is that you help the artist. Are, do you want to have a sync-driven deal? Yes. This is what we can do for you. And there may be other organisations that are better at doing it. So it's, it's yeah, that, that 360 idea isn't we're going to take everything 360. It's that we're going to offer 
everything 360 and you can pick and choose the bits and pieces out of that that you yeah. think we are best suited to to do for you a lot of you think about all the good creative agencies they exist because they're really really good and if a creative agency wants to work directly with you because you have a certain niche of music that is something that they can pitch successfully then mm -hmm. Certainly from my perspective, I would never want to stand in your way, but you would also want to make sure that you offer the right advice so that if they do a direct deal, they get the best deal they possibly can. So I think, you know, you think about Taylor Swift, you know, she, she signed a deal last year and, and you know, it, it, it's given her a level of um, control of confidence, yeah, yeah, yeah. but she's still goes universal, which I think is testament to the value and that a big organization can bring. And there are others that have gone with different types of record labels, but yeah. I think that's testament to we, we offer value and there's a recognition that and you know you're the artist, you're the right holder, it's yours. Well Universal must be doing something right with Taylor Swift because she's not only moved everything over to the record side, she's also moved everything over to the well She's working with the publishing side as well, and, which is not always something that artists are are told that they should be doing, kind of giving everything to one person. But I guess if you're Taylor Swift, working with you comes with an element of control. <laughs> um, I'll I tell you what I think has changed then. Um, I, I absolutely understand that you never want to put all your eggs in one basket because it's like, whoa, how's this going to work? Yeah. I think now for most modern uh, artist agreements, songwriter agreements, the level of transparency that you can demand, and it should be as high as possible, is so good that you can interrogate all of their activities. And one of the things that we've been doing a lot at University of Music is to, you know, on the um, collective rights management side, so the likes of PRS, NASCAP, and then we look at the neighbouring rights and we go, well, you paid us for that radio broadcast and you didn't for the underlying composition. There must be a problem here. That's a real value add to anybody who's got significant radio and TV usage, is that you can start to tie the two sides in and, yeah. um, in effect, do you know, regular desktop audits and make sure that they get paid every dollar cent and dime. So, yeah. That's a shift. That's a shift, and that's more about open, transparent partnership. So publishers and record labels used to be like this. We might have the same name, but we don't talk to each other. Yeah. And now, certainly from an operations perspective, there's a lot of conversations going on about how we help each other, right. help the creatives that we represent. job roles have been society relations there's been a lot of society relations and you even spent some time at ASCAP I wanted to get kind of your a, a, a specialist's uh, perspective on on this the current state of collection societies because I've I've you know, in 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 fifteen minutes, um, because I find 
Well, I have found myself being a PRS apologist quite often when I've been talking to rights owners, um, but also in in the you know the the short amount of time the four years or so that I've been teaching it, you know, you start getting asked questions that you never that you suddenly start to have to think about, and then you start looking into this very very old fashioned. Uh, system that's been in place for years and years and years that's completely different in the US than it is over here that they're needing to overhaul everything in the US because technology's taking over and then you've got all these companies having to change the way that they've been doing things for for decades because of companies like Centric, like Cobalt that are basically finally going, hey, we can do this better than you. And you get a lot of artists you know, I kind of one of the questions I say is, do you think you need to sign up with a collection society anymore? And so I was kind of I was interested in someone who ha, you know has had society relations in their job title and has spent time at one. Is can you comment on on the state of collection societies on where you think they are going, where you think they should be going? Is um, it all positive or? I think, Janet, I. Honestly, it's a, right now, yeah. uh, it's a mixed bag because you know we, we've got the challenge of, you know, the closure of. There's been no live music for three months. There's been no music played in any venue for three months. Yes, globally. So, all of the collection sites, whether it be author societies or performer societies, I've got the same challenges. They've lost um, the majority you know, of their money. <laughs> a third of half of the, the revenue yeah so it's a huge challenge for them um i when i started the, the society society relations program at emi back in 2008 um we, we very much wanted to go from um the the the, the relationship between publishing societies with the publishing going they bang on the table you're awful you're rubbish you're wasting my money and they'd leave and the society would fame, terror, and I've got the file back in draw marked this time next year because the publishers never did anything to follow up. So we we came up with a, um, a relationship based upon fact um, and <clears throat> um, a relationship based upon continuous engagement. So rather than say, gotcha, we'd say to societies, we've been taking a look at this and it doesn't look right. How can we work together to fix it? And doing that across the board in all of the major territories, all the major societies. Mm -hmm. And we saw some significant improvements, not just because of what we were doing, but because they were having to modernize. So yeah. roll that forward, you know, kind of 12 years, a lot of the challenges they face are endemic on both sides of the coin, whether it be on the label side or the publisher side. Um, they've got a huge risk, they're a big chunk of the revenue. And um, what our call has been to them is, this is the time when you need to plan ahead. This is the time when you need to course correct and go and sell, license as much music as possible. Music is so valuable, especially for businesses coming back or new businesses. Um, so it's how we collectively sell the value of music. And at the same time, you have to take a look at all of your back office operations because ostensibly you're all doing exactly the same job. You're taking 
use of license revenue, you match it against identified performances, and then you pay out the rights holder. That's PRS and PPR do the same. They now have a joint venture for all of their public performance licensing. So I think the future for societies is to have much more <clears throat> partnership in back office, the sharing of resources, sharing of technology, sharing of expertise. That will guarantee the survival. But your the question you ask yourself is, well, what's the value of joining a society? If you don't play live, if all of your stuff is online digital, you might want to ask yourself, what's the value? Mm -hmm. Because the ability to directly license is a direct benefit to a songwriter, especially. The ability to work with companies that don't have to deal with the rights invested in the societies makes mm -hmm. it a much more efficient and quicker licensing and distribution model. But the moment you start to have other stuff, you're going to want that collective protection that the society's bring. So yeah. my, my call to all the societies is to say, we've got you back, but now's the time to modernize. Now's the time to standardize your approach, work with the likes of DDEX, work with all of your major customers and suppliers, and license music so we drive the value up. Yeah. And then lower the cost. So actually, if you increase the value by 10%, 10% of that, sorry, 100% of that goes back out to the creator. We shouldn't be investing in localized monopolies. We should be invested in pushing up the value of music and making sure we pay every dollar cent we've done to the creator. Do you think that that's going to get linked back to some of the stuff that we were talking about right at the beginning of this? Yeah. Really kind of the data stuff is that it's kind of the centralization isn't going to come from a, from a collection society, but it's going to come from kind of a a collectively run company like uh DDX. yeah and, and you know the collection societies they're all members so um the, we live in unprecedented times and this especially for music is the chance to go <coughs> right okay let's get out of it and be on the front foot and <clears throat> open the kimono for the back office and go, do you know what this is work? And then look to your colleagues in other sites and go, what works for you? Can we borrow that? Can we buy that? Can we join that? Can we do this? Um, there are, you know, if you think for Visa and Mastercard, there are not individual processing centers in every single country which have different rules. You, you know, you pay for something in a, in a shop now and two milliseconds later, it's on your phone. Yeah. So the technology is there, it's just the, the want. And if we want to survive as an industry, we've got to fix that, the mess of the back office, because it should be easy. And you know, we, through the likes of DDX, we've actually proved that we can do this properly, which I think goes to, you know, you, the first point is what we do as an industry. We, I think there's a recognition that we have some challenges. Mm -hmm. We've got the solutions. We just need everybody to come to the table. And now is the time to come to the table. And I guess to finish up with, in the last two years and, and the time when it's all going a bit haywire at the moment, are you starting? Are you definitely seeing that that people are coming to the table and the convers the right conversations are happening? Yes, uh, I think that the creative credit initiative that we started with DDEX has been massively valuable 
Um, it, it's got, you know, all of the big uh, DSPs talking about identifiers. So there's a big push to get ISME, which is the International Standard Name Identifier, but also to get the others, which are proprietary, so IPI and IPM, out into the marketplace. That's a huge shift where everybody across the value chain is going, that's a really good idea. Can we join in? And, mm -hmm. you know, get access to that platform to join in. It's going to take time to get some of the less forward thinking organizations on board. But, you know, may maybe you know, 10 years down the pipe, maybe the GRD's time has come. I mean, it's not a database, it's just data. It's just standardized data. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, after the time and effort that a huge number of people put into that, that its core principle was, that's my song, you've got the number, now pay me for it. It's something that we can all buy into. Cool. Thanks for chatting to me. That's been it's really interesting. It's a pleasure. It's really nice to be invited into your bedroom. <laughs> and you didn't even have to buy me a drink. <laughs>